Welcome to HealthCast. I'm your host, Faith Ryan. At the National Institutes of Health, data drives the knowledge and insight necessary for medical research, like spearheading the implementation of new vaccines, therapies and cures, or fleshing out our understanding of common or genetically rare diseases and disorders. Recently, the NIH moved 30 petabytes of data to the cloud to progress scientific discovery, which is a lot of data. One petabyte is equivalent to 20 million four-drawer filing cabinets of text documents. Imagine all of that data being easily and immediately accessible for researchers to explore. In September 2019, Dr. Susan Gregorick was appointed the Associate Director for Data Science and as a Director of the Office of Data Science Strategy at NIH. She leads the implementation of the agency's strategic plan for data science and was instrumental in creating this office in 2018. She served as a senior advisor to the office until her recent appointment. We had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Susan Gregorick to learn more about NIH's storage and data computing capabilities, as well as the agency's strategic plan and what it means for health science in 2020. Hi, Dr. Susan Gregorick. Welcome to our show. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here this morning. Just starting off, can you describe your role at NIH as the Associate Director for Data Science and Director of the Office of Data Science and Strategy? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do so. You know, it's a new role for me. I've only been in this role for about two and a half, maybe three months. And as the Associate Director for Data Science, I lead NIH strategically in where we're going to go in data science and IT for data infrastructure. I also lead a team of excellent, wonderful colleagues as the director of the Office of Data Science Strategy, where our goal is to coordinate and implement the NIH strategic plan for data science. So I have two different roles. One is a leadership role in data science at NIH, where I advise the NIH director, Dr. Francis Collins, as well as the Scientific Data Council in strategically thinking forward-looking in data science. But I also lead a team of great colleagues to implement the activities that we already have on the books for data science through our strategic plan. Awesome. So what is NIH trying to accomplish right now in terms of its data science operations and policies and its strategic data plan? That's a great question. So the strategic plan for data science has five lofty goals that all interwork together. The first goal is in data infrastructure, and really we've been doing a lot with Strides and cloud computing. Strides is our partnership with both Google and AWS to provide services and infrastructure for storage and compute on data. We also have a goal for improving our data ecosystem, and this is everything from funding and supporting data repositories and knowledge bases through thinking strategically about how we're going to implement the fair, findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable data principles. Then we have a goal that's really about developing new tools and technologies and algorithms for data science and computational infrastructure. And I'd like to talk a little bit about FAIR if we have the opportunity, but we've been doing a lot about FIRE, fast healthcare interoperable resources, and that, those new algorithms to make data interoperable. We have a goal to improve and enhance the workforce and diversity of researchers who are conducting biomedical data science. And finally, our sustainable and stewardship of good data policies and practices. And we, as you know, have an RFI request for information on our data science, data management and sharing policy that will close on January 10th for researchers to tell us input and feedback in terms of how we would like to make data management sharing plans part of our regular business practices. Cool. So you had touched briefly on strides. Can you explain what's been done so far in terms of migration to different cloud storage capabilities to host all of that data NIH has? Yeah, absolutely. So through strides, 
We have partnered with Google and Amazon to provide discounts to researchers for data storage and data compute, as well as professional services in terms of enhancing code or using new algorithms for searching or for artificial intelligence. And we've been able to partner with Google and Amazon to provide new opportunities and training for workforce development. We've also leveraged strides at NIH to move more than 30 petabytes of data to both Google and Amazon, and this includes everything from our data platforms such as the Anvil platform or the Cancer Commons Research platform or the Kids First platform to very, very large data sets such as the Sequencing Read Archive, which has now moved to both Google and Amazon. And that in and itself is 24 petabytes of data. Most of it is available now for researchers to search and to access and to compute upon. We've had a number of interesting codathons around SRA for novel virus detection, for example. So I think that we're starting to see much more use of data in the cloud by researchers and clinicians, and our intent is to grow that capability in the future. So for audience perspective, how much data does NIH have in its possession, and how much is it expanding to, and what types of data does it hold? Oh, that's a, such a hard question to answer, because NIH is a really big organization. We have over 27 institutes and centers, and each one of those institutes is funding research and researchers to do novel experiments and collect data. So I would say that it's kind of an almost unknown unknown, but for sure we have at least 30 petabytes of data on the cloud. We anticipate next year we'll have 50 petabytes, but I suspect that if we um, were able to capture all that data that's being generated in researchers' laboratories and in big centers and clinical studies, it would probably be more in the zettabyte size of data. That's an enormous amount of data. And when we think about data science in the future, we're thinking about the integration of new wearable technologies that can, for example, take heart rates or other types of biomedical measurements and integrating that data with other types of data, such as the data that the All of Us program is collecting. It's no doubt that NIH will be generating an enormous amount of data, definitely on the zettabyte range, for researchers to use in the future. And the challenge is really making appropriate use of the data, making making it findable and accessible and hopefully reusable and interoperable. So it's a it's a definitely a grand challenge. I mean, there's so much data at NIH and, you know, all this data is great for representation in research. And a lot of people say there isn't enough data. And if we apply artificial intelligence, machine learning and deep learning techniques for research, what would be the ethical issues involved and what is your office currently trying to address in terms of ethics? Ethical use of data. That is a great question. As you know, we just recently had the advisory council to the director meeting where the AI working group presented their final report. They had many different recommendations, including collecting data that is AI ready, making sure that data that we do generate can be used by AI algorithms, providing appropriate consents for researchers who are doing AI, and making sure that there's safeguards in place for the ethical use of data. That's something that is of great interest to our office, understanding how people can use data, having the right safeguards in place so that researchers use the data and the conclusions that they draw from the algorithms of that generate information on that data are within the ethical parameters. That's something that we will absolutely be looking at. In fact, I'm very happy to say that we will be putting about $25 million next year in the implementation of those recommendations. And some of that will be new research and new capabilities in the ethical use of AI and data. We touched on uh, safeguarding the data. So what types of activities are being set before these models are run on the data sets themselves? 
So in terms of appropriate access, we have a number of different ways that researchers can request access to data. Most of that is filling out a data access request, which is then reviewed by data access committees. So we do make sure that what researchers are asking to do with the data is in line with how the data was originally consented by the patient or the study. So we do have many processes in which we do review how researchers are going to use the data, not scientifically, but just to make sure that it's in line with the original consent. So we touched on ways of sharing data earlier. How is NIH addressing concerns researchers might have about sharing their data and collaborating effectively across NIH? I think if you're asking how can we enhance collaboration amongst researchers, so one of the things that we're doing this year, and it's going to seem like it's a little bit of a small step, but in fact, it's a big step for NIH, is that we have a number of very excellent, well, we call them full stacks, but they're basically platforms where researchers can come and work on data. They can work together with their collaborators. Examples of these platforms include the Cancer Research Commons Framework, the new Biodata Catalyst, the Anvil, the Kids First. All of Us is a new platform that will be standing up soon. One thing that we would like to do is to enable researchers to work across those different full stacks or platforms. And so we're doing a few things, including creating a single login or identity and access management capability so that researchers can log in once and their identity is shared across all the platforms and also their authorization for different data is shared so that it's just a very streamlined method for researchers to log in once and get access to the data across all the platforms that they already have the ability to see and use. That will enhance collaboration amongst researchers and it will also just make it much more easier for any researcher to look at comparative studies across many different types of platforms. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. It seems like it's a small thing, but I think for many researchers, it will create a lower barrier for doing research. And that's really one of my goals is just to make it much easier for researchers to do data science, to enable new capabilities, or just basically lower the barrier for creating um, new pipelines or new workflows or new ways to get access to data. That's really exciting. Yeah. So what do you think makes for good data science? Yeah, it's such a great question. There's so many ways to go. Um, I think in data science, one of the things that makes data so attractive is the unknown ability to extract information and make correlations across data. But that means that we have to have really good data to start with good metadata. The data has to be well annotated or curated, or I hear a lot of researchers talk about the amount of time it takes to quality check and make sure the data is reproducible. So just really good data makes for good data science, but also making sure that it's findable so we can find it across so many different ways and reuse it appropriately. I think for good data scientists, and I'm really excited about all the different undergraduate and graduate and professional opportunities there are in training in data science. I think it, you have to be sort of curious about data and algorithms and computer science and the domain in which you want to work. For me, it's biomedical science, but you know, for others, it might be astronomy. So you have to be a little bit of a jack of all trades. You have to really have a passion for statistics and data science and certainly in this world, you have to learn to code in many different languages, but also you have to know a little bit about this domain and work with um, others. The nice thing about data scientists is that we often tend to want to collaborate amongst many different types of people, and that's really an exciting new area. And one of the fun things about the young people that are coming to NIH is that they intuitively want to work with each other. When they came last year, we had a Coding It Forward program where we brought computer scientists and data science at the undergraduate level to work at NIH. The first thing they asked us was for a big room where they could all work together on each other's projects. And that is so different from the undergrad experience I had, where um, that would not have been what had happened. And I thought that 
you know, this is just really wonderful. This is how they're being trained in academia now. And this is a wonderful path forward for data science in the future. Yeah, it definitely is. What other steps is NIH taking to train its workforce and attract the next bright new young talent that we see today? I'm, I'm super excited. I'm also excited because we have some really talented people who are working at NIH to facilitate this. And I want to give a shout out to Jess Masrak, for example, who's really leading our efforts. We're going to continue our work with the Coding at Forward Civic Digital Fellows Program to bring more undergraduates in data science, computer science, math to NIH to work on really challenging problems. We also have a partnership at the master's level with different universities so that we can bring in master's level students to work on more research enabling challenges in the summer. And this year, we'll stand up a data scholars program. It's a one to two year program where we bring in fellows at the PhD or um, MD level to work for a year or two on really challenging data science problems, problems such as leveraging very large data sets in the cloud or creating AI algorithms based on brain circuitry, for example. So there's a lot of excitement that's happening at NIH and data science at all levels from undergraduate to professional degrees. And I'm pretty excited to see this go forward. Yeah, it'd be exciting to see it the progress that NIH makes in terms of cultivating their workforce. So you had briefly mentioned the FAIR principles for the strategic plan. Could you touch more on that? Yeah, absolutely. I certainly can't take any credit for developing the FAIR principles. These were developed in an appropriate way through a community that has been discussing these quite a bit. We completely endorse and support the FAIR principles, and so some of the things that we're doing to make data FAIR include supporting data repositories and knowledge bases, but also generalist repositories where researchers who have a publication and they have data that underlines that publication table or figure, and they want to make that data accessible to other researchers, they can do that in a number of different ways. Through PubMed Central, for example, they can submit that data as a supplemental to their paper, and that data will have unique identifier and will be tracked to that paper so that will make it certainly findable and accessible. We have a partnership with Fixture, a generalist repository to understand how researchers will use generalist repositories and again they can deposit that data. It will get a, a unique identifier and it will be findable and accessible. So we are doing a number of different activities to understand how researchers would like to share their data, provide unique identifiers for that data, make sure that it's indexed either with schema or other indexing capabilities so that it's findable either through the publication or through searches like Google and that researchers can either download it and work on it in their own on-premise computing or can be put into the Strides computing framework and compute it up in the cloud. Those are the things that we're doing right now. We'll have a couple of funding announcements out for the community to support data repositories in particular in line with the idea of core what makes a good core data repository, making sure that the data can be found, can be accessed, and is well-managed and well-curated. Great. So could you briefly touch on the HL7 FHIR standards in research? Yeah, absolutely. FHIR, Fast Healthcare Interoperable Resources, make it possible for clinicians and healthcare providers and patients and doctors to share electronic healthcare records. It's an application program interface and a resource that basically makes that data, that healthcare data, interoperable. What we would like to do is to explore the use of FHIR to make phenotypic data also interoperable, particularly with healthcare data, and to make clinical research data interoperable. So we have two pilots that we are doing this year to explore the possibility of leveraging and using the FHIR resources and the APIs, both in phenotypic and in clinical data. 
I think that we will learn a lot through those two pilots. One thing that we have heard from the community through an RFI is that we do need to have more research in fire and more training as well. So I think that through these activities, we'll be able to perhaps stand up um, larger programs that draw on the capabilities of fire. And, I, and I'm pretty excited to see where this will go. Yeah, I mean, the fire standard is super important for exchanging EHR and health data electronically. So it's really exciting to hear about uh, all the clinical data and phenotypic data that NIH plans to move to this standard for research. Can you talk more about the data sharing and management policy yeah, absolutely. We recently put out a request for information on the data management and sharing draft policy. The policy says that all funded researchers through any mechanism, if you're an R01 researcher, if you're a contractor, et cetera, you will, as part of your application process, put in a data management and sharing plan. The plan will tell us how you intend to manage your data. All data should be managed. The plan will tell us how you intend to do that. And it will also tell us which data you plan to share, what your intended standards are, and where you think the data will be shared. So that's the draft policy. The request for information closes on Friday, January 10th. We'll take into account all of the responses and then finalize a final policy this year. Of course, it will take a while to implement the policy, but we do intend that data should be managed appropriately and the data that can be made shareable should be made shareable according to the FAIR principles. That doesn't mean that all data needs to be shared. That would be a big ask for everybody, but that there are data that um, make your research reproducible or make it interesting to other researchers, whether it's in a publication or not. And those data, you need to tell us how you intend to share that. So how does technology play a role in your own research interests? I know that you have done a lot of research in biomedical macromolecules. So how, what do you use technology for in that research? I love that when I was in academia and doing research, my interest was more in computational sciences in um, both on-prem and in supercomputing. And so I would write programs and use, at that time, supercomputing systems to understand the dynamics of energy transfer between macromolecules and ligands or solvents or other macromolecules. And it's I think that from when I was doing research to how things are evolving now today, it's quite a big leap. When I was doing research, cloud computing wasn't really something that my community was embracing. There wasn't a lot of technologies. Since that time, Kudo has been involved, and now there's all kinds of different ways that people have developed dockers and containers to do workflows and really move computing, even high-performance computing algorithms, to the cloud. And that's pretty exciting. It means that computing code and, and the way that we can do biophysics has changed from a single PI working in their lab to a community of researchers who can work together who can share all of their code or can make their code very modular and share bits and pieces. So it's a pretty new and interesting dynamic. A lot of different algorithms have developed and a lot of different programming environments have developed since then. And, and so it's probably pretty fun to be in biophysics right now, I'd imagine. <laughs> yeah, with all the data available, yeah. 30 petabytes and more. Exactly. You know, when I started, I remember when I first moved to DOE and I was talking to folks in my department at that time about using GPUs for computing and data analytics. And they really thought it was a strange idea. And now it's completely you know, normal to have those discussions. And I'm so excited to see the way that, for example, the Department of Energy has evolved from um, not just a high-performance computing environment, but also a high-data-performance computing environment. And I think that's 
how science is evolving, there's much more heterogeneity in the way that computing is done and the architectures that are used for computing. And, and I suspect that in the future that will evolve even more. So there won't just be one type of computing environment, but there'll be a heterogeneous selection and researchers will take advantage of all of those to solve the problems that they're interested in. Yeah, it'll be incredible to see in the next coming years, especially rolling into 2020 and beyond. So where do you see the biggest opportunities for progress in data science for research now? I think I'm pretty excited to see the confluence between data analytics and algorithmic development, particularly in AI and computing. I, I think that these are the real exciting times that people will and are already understanding and analyzing data to make real-time decisions that affect the way that research is moving. And so those will be enhanced even more by learning algorithms, by new interesting knowledge algorithms. We'll be able to query information about data that's on a scale that I think is pretty large. So we'll pull in information from many, many different sources. This is actually happening now where people are developing interesting knowledge graphs across many, many different data resources to query for information or for data that could be very hard to find and trying to help understand questions or hypotheses about research that they have. I see that the development of sensor technology and microelectronics will also drive the way that we collect data and analyze it and perhaps using 5G or fast networks to put some of that early analysis on the cloud for other researchers to then use will really change the dynamic of research. You know, every year it seems that the scale and pace of research grows faster. And I think that in the future, this will certainly absolutely be the case. And also more connected, where we analyze things faster and we're more connected to other researchers in ways that we weren't 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there are a lot of opportunities for biomedical research and health science in this space. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how we progress over time and what diseases and things we can solve in the future are. Me too. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to um, a world in where regular citizens can and will participate more in their healthcare and in science and in using technologies for their benefit and for their understanding. Yeah, especially with, like you mentioned, sensor data and uh, wearable devices. Those are going to be super important and critical for collecting all that data. Yeah and then storing them in, in the cloud. <laughs> so, yeah, it was great talking with you, Dr. Susan Gregory. Thank you. Um, and hopefully we get to see what progress you make this year. And Yeah, absolutely. Stay tuned. We have a wonderful website and a great communications director. Uh, so we put all kinds of information, not just about what we do in ODSS, but all the information that we collect from all across NIH and the different ICs about what they're doing in data science and computational sciences. So our website can be a way to learn about cool data science activities and funding opportunities or training opportunities across NIH. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris, Adam Patterson, and Faith Bryan. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.